The only school that teaches you about money is the school of hard knocks. Until now. You need to learn this business, and this is the time to do it. Become an insider. So you have to know the rules before you get in the game. Welcome to the Money MBA Podcast. Oh, have I got your attention now? Where you'll learn how to be a master of money. There's so many ways to make money today. Let me show you in two seconds flat why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now here's your host, Jonathan Katsmita. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Money MBA Podcast and to our quarantine sessions series. Here I am in a hotel quarantine for 14 days in Sydney, Australia. It's a requirement in order for me to enter the country. So what better time than now to do a string of podcast interviews? In this uh, interview, I'm welcoming Jason Buck of the Mutiny Fund. Um, There's no real simple straight way to describe Jason. Other than the fact, I'll say that um, after spending a weekend with him at a small business gathering in Dallas, I knew right away that uh, he and I thought similar in a lot of ways and that he would be an exceptional guest for the podcast. So he did not disappoint. We had an extensive conversation about, well, just about everything, including his uh, new hedge fund, Mutiny Fund, which is a long volatility fund. And if you don't know what that means, or if you think that doesn't apply to you, well, we're here to change your mind. So sit right back and enjoy this fantastic interview with Jason Buck. Jason Buck, my friend, thank you for joining me here on the reboot of the Money MBA podcast. And I'm uh, in quarantine in Australia and Sydney. So these are aptly titled The Quarantine Sessions. Thanks for coming on. And uh, tell me, where are you at these days? Well, normally I live in Napa Valley, California, but I'm here in beautiful Philadelphia for the holidays and uh, excited to come on the podcast and hopefully try to keep you sane, although I I might tip you over the edge. You never know. (laughs) So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So the funny thing is, is I met you in Dallas um, at a a bit of a, a small little investor gathering. And uh, we were sitting at dinner and we were just kind of making small, small talk. And I didn't, I've never met you. I didn't, I didn't know much about you. And um, it was, it was just kind of a funny conversation, but as the weekend went on, it became very obvious that um, you're the type of person that um, it's very valuable to be around you from both a investing standpoint. Um, I just think as a thinker, there hasn't been somebody that kind of made me do a double take um, in a while since Mike Green. Um, and it was also interesting to kind of have that dialogue going on between the two of you. So this is, this is cool to, to, to chat with you. Um, and it was cool to connect with you and get to know you in, in Dallas. But it was interesting because when the conversations first kind of started out, uh, we didn't really you know, know everybody in the group and there's kind of that feeling out phase. Um, I got the vibe, or at least it, it, it was kind of suggested that you know, you worked in commercial real estate, right? So is that, is that something you'd always done? Is that just kind of where you sharpened your teeth? Like what, what was the early, who's, who's the early Jason Buck before you became the long bull guy? Sure. So like, I think the stereotypical story of like all entrepreneurs, like it started at a very young age, right? Whether it was selling like bracelets in school when I was nine, you know, like just kind of braiding together pieces of string, right? And flipping them in school. Or I would, uh, I would stay up late at night and I would record uh, Yo! MTV raps and I'd make little like mixtapes out of it that I'd sell at school, like hooking up my recorder to like the TV and everything. So I was just 
always trying, you know, every entrepreneurial angle you can do. And then um, my family kind of is in real estate. Uh, my mother uh, would flip a lot of houses. She was a residential realtor, like every, all the time I was growing up. I never lived in a house longer than like two years growing up. It was always like in a construction site. So real estate was always like part of what we did growing up. And then, uh, you know, worked even in construction growing up too, like, you know, everything from electrician to carpenter to digging koi ponds, like all, all the crappy jobs. We had, you know, we had to do all of them when we were growing up. And so um, I actually went to, I played soccer at College of Charleston okay. and um, started out as an international business major and just found it boring. I thought it was so easy just because I come from a long line. Also on my father's side, entrepreneurs. Um, my great-grandfather invented a, um, the articulating jaw and chucks, which is a, is a machine tool that holds drills in place. So just this long line of entrepreneurials and creative people. And so when I started doing um, you know, international business and studies, it was, it, was, it was far too easy. So I actually transitioned to my other passion, which was comparative religions. So I actually studied uh, comparative religions at school and specialized in Eastern mysticism. Um, but then post-school, um, I mainly like worked in restaurants and everything in school. And then when I got out of school, um, I ended up uh, getting into commercial real estate in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, throughout that process, I built up a commercial real estate development company, um, ended up owning a few restaurants as well, and even an internet service provider. And then along came the uh, great financial crisis. And we, we all learned that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats and yeah. liquidity dries up. It's not, it's not a fun business to be in. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Your story is very similar to mine, but it just sounds like um, you had a lot more luck and a lot more success. <laughs> but just the early phase, tinkering, always trying new things, being in, a, in a, an environment that was relatively, relatively supportive of it. And would you say that in the beginning, was it, you know, was anyone pushing you down a particular path, like do real estate because real estate's this, this, safety net or did they, you know, really let you tinker around and make things and, and screw up? A little bit of both. So I pursued real estate because it was a passion of mine. I, I really love architecture and interior design. So it was more about um, the creativity side of it. And not only that, I really liked projects that were really difficult. Like if, if nobody else wanted to buy a building because nobody else could make it work in a vanilla way, I would try to think of really creative ways to solve that problem. And so trying to find you know, the more warts the property had, the more interesting it was to me because I just got to fulfill a lot of that creative passion. Um, but both my parents, yeah, are pretty open and like you kind of do what you want in a way. But, you know, it's interesting to me is that, um, you know, I switched my major from business to comparative religions. Maybe not my parents, but other people like family and close friends like think you're an idiot, you know, right. like what, what, who would study comparative? What are you going to do with that? How are you going to make a job out of that, right? And then... You know, for a while I was, you know, just working in restaurants. I even I went to Istanbul, Turkey for a while and sold Turkish rugs to American tourists on the streets of Istanbul. Who you know, are so you? <laughs> it's, yeah. So it's it's just interesting. What I'm getting at is the the sine waves or the waves of of, of the way people look at you, right? If you're doing the what they believe is the right thing, they believe you're good, you're doing the right thing and you're on the right path. And as soon as you do something that people don't understand, you're you're a completely idiot, right? And then so what happens is then, you know, starting this commercial real estate development company, you know, you're doing really well. And because it's a leverage play, you have this outside success and everybody thinks you're a genius, right? And then 2008, 2009 hit and it crashes and now you're an idiot. And so you have to get to this point eventually where you're just like, wait, do I have to find out intrinsically what motivates me and whether I think I'm doing the right thing or not or what the world says I am? Because 
the vagaries of uh, of just serendipity and luck can make you think like a genius or an idiot, and both aren't healthy for you. Well, it's yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting because I've been um, maybe accidentally, but I, I've been noticing more that some of the people who are most successful, whether it be entrepreneurial, but certainly in investing, it seems to me like, for example, I studied mathematics and I have two bachelor's degree in, degrees in math. And if you tell the, the typical or average person that, that they're just automatically going to assume that you're great with money and you know how to, and you tell me you're in investing or you work in finance, like, well, obviously, you know, you like math. But one of the things I've noticed is some of the people have the most interesting stories and, and perhaps the um, the best track record, you know, the longevity in the space tend to be doing like history majors or like you doing something that's more cultural. And it, it's, you know, math was discovered a long time ago. And, and nowadays, a lot of the, you know, the advantages of, of being good with math, it's not relevant, right? It's the computers are kind of figuring that part out for you. It's those who have a skill set of being able to see the human component that's playing into the markets, whether it's sociological, psychological, um, cultural, I've noticed more and more that's the real advantage. And, and I'm almost stepping back and saying, man, you know, I kind of scoffed at studying history and things when I was younger, especially in high school, and thought I was such a smart guy studying math because it was more applicable. But now when I step back and look, it's like, I don't need to be a calculator. We already have a calculator. Um, exactly. I would, I would have never guessed that you had a math background, honestly, because like, to me, you have much more of that uh, polymathic viewpoint of like, you know, a history major or something like that. Like you look at the world in a much more broader scope, you know, actually there was, when I studied comparative religions, to me, it was so fascinating because it encompassed everything, right? It was world history. Like everything is expressed through religion, whether mm -hmm. it's art, history, psychology, sociology, it's all under that, that broad rubric of, of compare of religion. And so that's why it fascinated me. Also, when I worked in restaurants, I got really into wine because it was an endless learning curve. And so I have this insatiable curiosity. And so even if you try to learn everything about every winery on the planet, the next year, a new vintage resets everything. And so you can never learn enough. And so it's like that insatiable curiosity to me is like what always has kind of driven me or behind the scenes. And so I was actually really surprised to hear the math background. Well, that's, it's, I, I now hate you for mentioning that about wine because up to this point, I haven't been a wine drinker because everything you just said has basically been a, a level of intimidation. It's like, this is so much, I know you got to eat the elephant one bite at a time, but I mean, there's just so much to, to tackle there. Did you, I mean, you've lived and really I would say your home is, is, is in St. Helena, Napa Valley area, correct? Yeah. For the last decade. Yeah. And, and, was that part of, is this kind of a migrating type of thing because you started getting into wines and, or is that just the great place to live in California? Well, one, it's, it's paradise. So it's a great place to live, but actually, yeah, I almost had nothing to do with wine. That's the interesting part. So I've lived all over the U S I've lived in Europe, I lived in South America, and I was actually living in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And, um, my girlfriend and I were breaking up. So I came back to the U S and I was going to either, I was likely going to settle in San Diego and then it just so happened, um, my, my mother had recently moved to St. Helena and she runs a, a, a little single screen movie theater there. Oh, wow. And so I just, I just came up to see my mom for a little bit. And then next thing I know, it was like 12 years later. <laughs> and so, the, uh, it, although I, I love the, all my friends in the wine industry and, and my girlfriend's in the wine industry, um, but I'm not a big, huge fan of Napa wine. So I'm a little bit of a, a heretic and mix the orthodoxy there. 
but I also like being in a separate industry um, than, than what's surrounded by me. Like everybody's in the wine and hospitality industry around us. So I, I, I like being outside of that. Gotcha. So speaking of people's perspectives about making good decisions, bad decisions, um, did, did your mother kind of go through that when, when she made the idea of, and talk about entrepreneurial, but starting a single screen movie theater? No, she, she, she's loved it as far as like, I mean, but let's be honest, right? It's not in like rural Iowa. It's in Napa Valley. So <laughs> there's a lot of community support and like the Coppola's live down the road. And so every time the Coppola family, whether it's even the nieces and nephews, whenever they have a, a film, they show it first to the community at my mom's theater for free before it ever even goes like Sundance or Cannes Film Festival or anything. Gotcha. So it's like, so like when... Robert Redford's in town and he's working on a film, they'll ask to come down during the day and play the film on the screen. So that way they they can edit like and see what it looks like on, up on screen. So you have like George Lucas also lives over the hill. So it's like, it's it's an idealized world to have like a single screen theater. And it's it's still like the oldest uh, family run, continue, like family owned, continually running theater uh, east of the Mississippi. It's like 106 years old now. And so it's a very like jewel box for St. Helena and just for Napa Valley in general. Um, but yeah, when the, but as far as this year, it's been a, a tough tough go, obviously. And um, it's, you know, she tried doing outdoor screenings and that sort of thing. But then with the next, this, the second wave of shutdowns in California, it's made it exceedingly difficult. And, but it's, it's really community supported at the end of the day. So we'll, we'll see what happens next year. Yeah. It sounds like you've probably had a really difficult time networking. Um, so you went through this. It's interesting that you obviously we understand what's going on with COVID, small businesses, especially something like a movie theater. Um, we know what happened in 2008, 2009. So it sounds like, you know, you had this period of, of you had a pivot, right? How did you go through that process? And I think this is an interesting question to ask any entrepreneur because everyone thinks, it's like that meme where everyone thinks the entrepreneurial journey is straight and it's really all these squiggly lines. So did you kind of have a, a freak out period? And, you know, it's, it's obviously something that potentially your family's going through with, you know, what do we do with the theater? But for you specifically, when you went, you know, and there's so much money being made in real estate, especially commercial real estate, and then that you get punched in the face with that, um, was it a welcome reality change or did you kind of go through a process of, of figuring out what to do next? It's always funny in hindsight when we, when we have a little bit of a bit of time frame between uh, you know, when something happened to now and that vivacity of impression is lessened, you're like, no, it was a good thing. But you forget <laughs> like when you're like in the fetal position on the floor, right? <laughs> that was me and Mark. Um, so. Yeah, exactly. So I think about, I think about when in 2007, I remember like being a little concerned about like the real estate industry. And I remember going around and asking all these older real estate developers, you know, are you concerned? And they're like, no, this time's different and everything. So I was like, you know, I was like, this is weird, but um, you know, but I thought these guys had a lot more experience than I did. And then I come to find out later, like commercial real estate developers are the most preternaturally optimistic people on the planet. Like you have to be right to develop a property or project that's going to take like two to five years in the future. You just got to be like, you know, exit strategy later. Like I got this. Right. And so, so when, when 08 hit in 09 there and liquidity dries up, it was incredibly painful. Like you go from, like I said, you go from, you know, just, you're, you're leveraged long GDP, you're making all this money, you know, everybody thinks you're a genius. And then all of a sudden liquidity dries up, everything's full stop, especially in the real estate side. And then you have all these projects that have, you know, monthly payments that you can't make. And so, you know, to lose money for family and friends is one of the most like painful experiences I've ever had in my life. And so 
coming out of that, I'd already been trading options before and everything. And I just thought there has to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk, right? And so I'm kind of a glutton for punishment, but you know, the more impossible the idea is, the more it interests me. And so everybody's like, you know, you can't, you can't hedge your local entrepreneurial risk. Like it's impossible. And so I just kept thinking about it and kept working on it and started, you know, I was already trading options anyway, started, you know, shorting the markets in, in 2008, 2009, but didn't, wasn't a, a professional options trader. So I really learned about things like fixed strike vol, which just means if, if at the money volatility is 20% and out of the money is 40%, right? And you buy an out of the money put at 40% volatility and it moves to your strike, but volatility has gone up from 20% to 40%. That means it hasn't moved at all on your put. So therefore, you, you may have been directionally right and everything, but you didn't make any money. You actually lost money due to theta bleed. Right. And we can get into that later. But like, this is what um, Robinhood traders are going to learn now, right? They, 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 they did those Tesla calls you know, with Wall Street bets and everything, and they got the dealers on the other side and they made money. But those dealers aren't stupid. Next time, they're going to drive up that implied volatility so even if you're directionally right, you don't make money. And that's really confusing to people. And, and it confused me in 08 when I was trying to figure it out, shorting the banks. But eventually started trading VIX in 2010, 2011 and built some VIX arbitrage models and everything. But this whole time, the idea was there's got to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk. And so what we came out of, you know, this is better part of a 10-year journey is figuring out there's got to be a way to hedge uh, what we call long volatility or tail risk. And if you hedge that against the S&P 500, you know, when liquidity events happen, like we just saw in March, it's usually you see it manifest in the S&P 500. And so it's not a perfect proxy for entrepreneurial risk, but it's a way to hedge out some of your liquidity risk or your global macro risk as an entrepreneur and make sure you get this um, hedge position that gives you a convex cash position. So all of a sudden when liquidity dries up in March, you're sitting on a boatload of cash and now you can use that cash to uh, make payroll, buy up your competitors for pennies on the dollar, maybe eventually buy real estate for pennies on the dollar. Now, granted, this scenario, we saw it V-shape right back. We had this, whatever people want, V-shape, K-shape recovery. And you saw it come roaring back due to, you know, everything else that's been going on. But it's just a, a, the way we try, try to think about it is like an entrepreneurial put option. You know, it's never going to be perfect to your idiosyncratic business, but it helps you not as worry as much about the global macro landscape as an entrepreneur and just focus on what you do best and, and hedge away that macro risk. And that's, that's what was the impetus for what we did at Mutiny Fund, um, but also works for just hedging out your stock exposure as well. So a couple of things I want to extrapolate from that. So, so you, you, you did a, a quick leap there. So, okay, commercial happens, it sucks, it's painful. There's a lot you learned from it. Looking back on it, you know, you can pretend like it was a good experience. You took some value out of it, but you would have been happier if it didn't happen. One of the things that's interesting, I think, and I recommend anyone do this, but for those who actually will, you know, explore what you're doing with your hedge fund, which we didn't introduce yet, which is Mutiny Fund, but exploring, for example, your podcasts, it, it, to me, and again, meeting you and, and being in these private discussions where the, where the granularities of what gets discussed is so deep and so particular, I find your story so interesting because you're waxing intellectual with a guy like Mike Green and you're, you're not a career Wall Street guy. And so I think it's, it's, there's something else there, right? You, you didn't just say, oh, okay, commercial real estate, a no-go, I want to be an options guy. Like you had to be digging in that from, from various angles for a period of time. Like 
what would you say your the arc of your journey has been to be at a point now where you have the understanding and confidence to kind of say, hey, I think I think I can make people money and preserve wealth with a unique hedge fund opportunity. Sure, that's a, that's a great question. And so, actually, Mike Green and I have talked about this a lot personally. Um, when you do a lot of your own work, you then have the confidence to talk about th- you know things confidently or, or or question other people's opinions, right? Especially yeah. in that global macro landscape. And so there's no driver like pain, right? And so coming out of that 2008 and having such a painful experience and then spend the next couple of years learning how to trade options, learning how to trade VIX. But part of that learning process is losing money, right? The idea that people say, oh, you should paper trade and everything. There's no, there's no pain yeah. in paper trading. You can only really learn through that pain, unfortunately, of, of losing money. And then part of that then is you have the, the pain of 2008, the pain of losing money, trying to learn how to trade options and VIX. And then you, <laughs> you really, combine you really that. They are masochists. Exactly. You combine that with an insatiable curiosity. And then you just, it was just a, a voracious experience of just, um, just fully diving into this for the better part of a decade of just trying to figure it out. And then what happened is too, is like, so, you know, I, I got less shitty over time, right? Because I don't think we, I don't think we ever get good or great at anything, right? We become less shitty, right? You're That's all not, my goal is. To, it's it's like outrunning the bear, right? You're just you're just trying yeah. to be faster than the other guy a little bit. Exactly. I just got to get barely ahead of you, and then uh, or I trip you, and then I get barely ahead. <laughs> right. so, so so part of that process was as I was starting to learn how to do it myself and getting better at it with options and VIX, is I started tracking a lot of the managers in the space, and it's a pretty small niche space. But um, about five or six years ago, started tracking a lot of them, you know, like the, the Chris Coles of the world. And eventually what I came to realize was, you know, I may not be as good of a trader as I am as an entrepreneur. And there's this big problem out there that retail has no way, you know, the average person has no way of hedging their portfolio or their entrepreneurial risk or whatever, their long GDP risk. And so what would happen is we would have, you know, when family and friends would come and say, you know, I've read a Nassim Taleb book or a Chris Cole white paper. How do I hedge my portfolio? And I'd be like, do you have $150 million? No. <laughs> well, you're screwed. Yeah, and so, <laughs> yeah just got, got tired of, of that conversation and figured out, once again, there has to be a way, right? As entrepreneurs, it's scratch your own itch. Here's a complex problem. Let me figure this out. And so it took the better part of the last five years to really figure out the vehicles, the um, working with lawyers, working with back office managers, figuring out how you could put this together so that um, the average in- investor could actually have access to hedging products or some of the best managers in the space. And it's, it's again, super interesting, the somewhat parallel journeys here. I just think you, you're, you're moving faster and more successful than I am. But, you know, I got involved ironically in, in the mortgage finance space at the peak of the crisis and um, started a business in that space at the peak of the crisis. And like you said, there's, it's in those moments when you actually, a lot of people I think just take, take it on the chin and blame somebody else. And for me, it was an opportunity to dive much deeper into what was really going on. And, and that really got me into a better understanding of, of markets. And you gotta be careful sometimes when you dig that deep because you can become perma bearish right? You, you, you become too smart for your own good, right? You're overthinking things. Um, but it's definitely something, you know, as I work with a lot of retail, running a mortgage company, it's definitely something I empathize where these people have no, no hedge whatsoever, and they have no capacity to hedge. There's no savings rate, number one. And number two, they don't have the intellectual capital to even start scratching at the surface of this type of stuff. And then they don't have the financial capital 
to even get involved. Um, so I think what you're doing is it's a product in a niche that I thought about for a long time and, and just didn't have the skill set to provide, but it's something the market needs. And there's so many people, whether it's entrepreneurial risk or just call it plain, simple mom and pop retail risk, where your only asset's your home and you have $2,000 of savings. Now, obviously, that's not someone who's going to invest in your fund, but I also think people live that way because they feel hopeless, right? They, they kind of see Wall Street just leasing, you know, the dumb money. And so they'd rather buy an Xbox and a new car. And, and so it's, it's interesting to kind of see you, you know, start this process of opening the doors to, to more people getting involved. And in, in I think a, correct me if I'm wrong, would you almost consider your strategy somewhat of, you know, you're, you're calling it hedging entrepreneurial risk, but it's, it's very much like you're, you're, you're buying a long vol, volatility insurance policy. Yeah, in a way, that's, yeah. Um, you know, nothing I say can be misconstrued as investment advice, so I don't want to say an insurance policy because that could get you into trouble. But <laughs> okay, no, yeah, it, that was, those were my but, words, not yours. Yeah, tail risk is like insurance, though, in a way, right? And just like insurance, you're historically going to pay that premium. Um, and then, you know, when you need it most, you know, then the insurance will kick in and, and ballast your portfolio. So that is a good way of thinking about it. Um, but just a couple of things you said that, I think about often is like, yeah, I'm not a perma bear by any means. Like I, that's, that would assume that I, I knew where the global macro landscape was heading. And I have a lot more epistemic humility than that. And a lot of times I get accused of being a contrarian. I don't think I'm a contrarian. I just don't think anybody knows what they're talking about. Right. And yeah. so if you can combine this negatively correlated asset, like long volatility and tail risk with um, long stocks, bonds, you know, private equity, VC, real estate, which are all long GDP, if you combine something that's negatively correlated with that and you rebalance over time, that's what builds and preserves your wealth. So it's about not predicting the future. It's about having a portfolio that's um, holistically built to handle whatever comes in the future. And none of us know, because I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's fascinating to me that the more um, intelligent or intellectual somebody is, the more likely they are to be a perma bear. I don't know what it is that that skepticism runs deep or whatever. Um, and I think I, we were sitting at maybe that first night, uh, you know, I can't help myself. I have Tourette's sometimes I should just be quiet, but everybody around the table was talking about, you know, everything that can and will go wrong. And I was like, you know, all of us sitting around this table are naturally, you know, uh, skeptical or, 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 or going to be, you know, contrarian or whatever. But I was like, why don't we try to put our, our, our brain power towards a positive side or yeah. somewhere in the middle, right? If we could barbell both of those, maybe the realism in between, between pessimism and optimism is a realism. And I was trying to, you know, push the group a little bit that way because I can't help myself. But like, yeah, it's interesting how you get the groups like that together and it goes dark real quick. It does. And I, I think part of it is, is, is you start to realize the rules of the game and you realize the game in a lot of ways is skewed in unfair ways. And I think that's where you start to get skeptical and, and you have a lot of, you know, real money advocates and, and Bitcoin maxis and, and, you know, Austrian economics and, and, and the feds and, and put, but at the end of the day, the reality is, is they're in control and you have to play that game and taking the, you know, intellectual superiority doesn't make you money, you know, and that's where you saw a lot over the last couple of months, the Robin Hooders just, you know, fleecing some of the suits. And that's, that's a, you know, a Dave Portney El Presidente type of thing. You know, he really hammers that into him and, you know, one day he might get carried out on a shield, but. But there's point. There's a point in that, right? When sometimes you overcomplicate things, and and at the end of the day, it's it's partly just because you have this 
this inherent bias that you need to work on. Um, so when you were going, when you were looking to, to start this fund, and you kind of touched on this briefly, it's not, you can't Google, you know, give me the long vol guys, right? So how, how do you, I mean, and, and to be clear, we'll get into the fund structure, maybe perhaps um, in, in, in its granularities later, but just so people understand, yeah. you've taken an ensemble approach where you're kind of like a fund of funds and you you've literally have sourced capital into some of the most wicked smart guys in the volatility space that typically no one would be able to invest in because they just don't have the, the purse size. So um, these guys are, are kind of like hermits in a dark cave, right? Doing, doing their black magic. How, how do you, you know, go about organizing even a database of people to follow and then eventually reaching out to them and saying, Hey, I'd, I'd like to work with you. Yeah. Unfortunately you can't also Google how to start a hedge fund either. It doesn't give, <laughs> you don't find good information. <laughs> um, so when I started tracking a lot of the managers, one of the best platforms at the time was by RCM alternatives out of Chicago. And so I got to know the guys five or six years ago at RCM alternatives. And so I was tracking a lot of the managers to their platform and then finding the others just through like Google searches or whatever conferences, et cetera. And um, so eventually decided to kind of team up with RCM alternatives, one to help help us source managers, but also to help us run our back office. Because um, my partner Taylor and I don't come from the hedge fund space. We didn't work at Goldman Sachs or whatever. And so we knew that we would need an institutional um, framework to running our fund. And so we teamed, we, we joined ventured our back office with RCM Alternatives to, to build that institutional backbone for us, right? So then I'm sourcing these managers and watching them, you know, seeing their trades um, and their track records on, on like RCM platforms and things like that. And um, eventually start to get to know these managers personally, whether it's through conferences in Miami. In January, we used to have like a couple of conferences in Miami that you could go to that are for like alternative investments. And in 2017, 2018, just started to talk to some of these managers and build personal relationships with them and saying, this is what I'm kind of working on, trying to figure out if this is viable to offer retail solution, right? And so they were, they were interested because all of them, let's be honest, they're human. They have family and friends that aren't ultra high net worth individuals. So they're like, you know, I wish I could protect them too. So this is a very interesting project you're working on, right? So eventually I kind of figured out the vehicle was the key. And the vehicle we went with was a, it's called the commodity pool operation or a, a CPO. And what that allowed us to do is if we'd only trade in like the, the listed futures and equity markets, the cash settled futures and I'm sorry, futures and options market, it allows us to take unlimited accredited investors um, without the 99 cap that you have in an SEC regulated fund. Okay. And so that was the key, first of all, setting up the vehicle, the, the, the CPO. And then, um, so a lot of these managers are what's called QEP minimums, which means you have, it's a higher accreditation than just accredited. And a lot of times it's at least 2 million in investable assets outside your home. Well, part of the CPO model is if the CPO has 5 million in assets, the CPO qualifies for QEP. So even if the individual managers, they can only take QEP funds. Well, if our fund qualifies as QEP, if we've aggregated 5 million or more, then uh, we can we can actually allocate to those managers which you wouldn't have access to before, right? And so this is what we figured out. And so we went about trying to aggregate that five million dollars, and we did so with just saying you only the minimum was a hundred thousand dollars to be with us, and we could provide access to these QEP managers. And then so it was also a chicken and egg problem with these managers is saying, look, we're, this is what we're building. We're going to get there eventually, and we want to allocate to you. You know, will you accept our funds maybe at a lower minimum as long as we qualify for QEP? Maybe we'll beat you up on fees a little bit, whatever it is. But we, 
it's basically years of creating those personal relationships and knowing what we're going to build. But I, I think it, it's so funny, like you said, in hindsight, it's like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But, and it makes sense now that we've launched the fund and, you know, and it's growing. But like, those guys were taking a chance on, on us as well, right? To, to, to be along the same journey with just these two guys coming from outside the industry that were just, they had just a dream to make this happen. And these guys bought in early with us and they, were, they, they really also helped nurture us along. And that's how we were able to kind of aggregate this, this all-star team. Yeah, and it's um, it's interesting because it's it's a lot of brain damage that people you can't appreciate unless you try to go through. It. And I've I've tried nothing on the level that you guys have um, succeeded with here, but I've tried just doing little types of you know trying to bridge that gap, right? And started various types of small little funds so that I could somehow feed retail into something that's a bit more exotic. And it's exhausting um, before you even get to the point of having a fund, running a fund and doing your job as a fiduciary. And so it's, it really is in a lot of ways. And I can't speak for what it's like in the wall street world. Cause sometimes it feels like they just slide into a new shoe because of how deep the network is. But in your case, and you look at, this is kind of why I started with, you know, your journey. I mean, this is like the ultimate entrepreneurial destination is managing capital when you've never been a capital allocator, right? And it's, it speaks tremendous volumes for the entrepreneurial journey and that when people get involved and in, call it being an entrepreneur, being in business for themselves, they need to really realize it's like an MMA fight. Like you may win, but you're going to have your ass handed to you along the way. And so <laughs> I don't know if that's a great interlude into my next question here, but so you launched the fund and you miss March, right? So, um, it, you know, it's, it's kind of, again, I don't know if I made the point before and, and might have moved on to something else in my tangent brain, but people got to listen to your, your podcast. Um, and it, it's very clear listening to it that you've done the work, you've done the research. You're not only passionate about the fund, but passionate about this entire thing. And so... You go into this, you build this, it's brain damage. You're, you're climbing up the hill with the rocks on your back and you finally get there and someone's already, you know, picked the fruit, right? That Minsky moment came and went in March. Um, now, when you look back on it, it, you know, was that the event that you were building the fund for? Or do you think that was the test run? And, you know, the real show is just around the corner. And how much of that feeling is a bit of, you know, shit, we missed it? Um, and, and, and really, you know, what you think the market's telling you at this point? Uh, D, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go back for a minute. Like, touch on a couple of things you said. It's like, I think as an entrepreneur, any like true bred entrepreneur, and you know, this is like, you don't take no for an answer, right? No means ask another question, yeah. right? And you just keep fighting every day. And I don't want to get too deep or philosophical about it, but I'm not sure necessarily that we have free will. And so if you already know you're just a hardcore entrepreneur, you don't know any other way. So as you get to each end of each day and you're exhausted, you're going to get up and do the same thing the next day. It's not like you made a choice. Yeah. It's just like what you're going to do, right? Like, and like you said, I'm so passionate about capital allocation, wealth preservation, you know, building holistic portfolios. And I have been for decades that I just can't help myself, right? Like if none of this was going on, I'd still be doing this. Like, and so, yeah, I'm not sure we have too many choices at it. So you just, you just, 
every day you just move the ball an inch down the field and eventually hopefully you get somewhere, right? And so we, like I said, started, um, I built this with my partner, Taylor Pearson, and, and Taylor and I met like 2017, um, originally online talking about uh, stable tokens, uh, crypto stable tokens in 2017. And I was just kind of fascinated by them because to me, a real stable, a global stable co- token would be holding the world's global asset class, like different asset classes and, and rebalancing frequently. And that would provide you with a stable uh, coin that would actually... Not, maybe not exceed inflation because it would actually be inflation if you had a proper basket. So we, we, we used to really get excited about talking about stable coins. And then at one point he was asking me, he was thinking about in, investing in Artemis. And so we talked, I talked to him about, you know, the pros and cons of investing in Artemis and, and Chris Cole and those guys. And, but I said, you know, I think an ensemble approach is better because there's so many different path dependencies to a, to a sell-off. Right. And so the ensemble approach makes sure that you you try to ensure that you capture that move, especially if they only happen once every decade. You can't miss them, you know. So that that was the point of our ensemble approach to to risk off and tail risk. I mean, sorry, uh, long volatility and tail risk. But then, so it took all of 2019 to get all the regulatory approvals from the NFA. So we originally were told it was going to be like 30 to 60 days to get the NFA approvals. It took the entire year of right. 2019, and then we start. Taylor starts marketing. Um, in January of 2020. And, you know, at that time, nobody's really interested in long volatility or tail risk, right? And <laughs> of course. So with, with ourselves and, and family, we had, we had aggregated a few million, but we needed to raise a few more million to get to that 5 million minimum. So the March sell-off comes, and I was like the, uh, it was just on again the other night, but I really love Spy Game with Robert Redford and, and Brad Pitt. Okay. And in the, in the movie, um, Brad, I mean, Robert Redford tells his secretary, he asked her, uh, when did Noah build the ark, Gladys? Before the rain. Right. Before the rain, right? But everybody wants protection after the flood, right? So March was both a blessing and a curse, right? Because March sell-off happened. So now people are interested in long volatility and terrorists. So then we were able, um, April 17th, to aggregate the $5 million for the QEP. So we were able to launch the fund. So that's the blessing. I'm just happy to be launched and in the market and, and have a vehicle for people to be able to hedge their risk. But Taylor and I talked about it at that time. Is like it could have been a death hug too, because I'm like, if we don't stay a second leg down after here, and volatility crushes back down, we're going to be in our largest historical drawdown, you know, like through the end of the year. So that's the the trade off, right? And so it's 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 both a good time and a bad time to be investing in long volatility. And you don't know a priori. Like I think Taleb said it best when he was on Bloomberg a few months ago that if you don't have insurance, you don't have a portfolio, and you can't time your portfolio insurance. So to answer your question, we built our long volatility and tail risk product specifically that you could hold it for the rest of your life and rebalance it with the other portions of your portfolio. So yes, it's like, shit, we missed it in March, but also we're just happy to be running. And we, Taylor and I want to run this for the rest of our lives because this is what exactly we want for ourselves and our families. It was really a scratch your own itch. We have skin in the game and soul in the game with our relatives and everything and even my in-laws. And so this is what we built to have it perpetually. So although it hurts right now, maybe to miss that, it's a, it's a very long game. And so it's, it's both, right? So it, I do feel that pain, but also I, I have the, the thinking to know this is what we're building for the future. And the, the real key to it too is like, if you had had us on the books after March and April 1st comes around, how many people were looking to buy stocks? Almost no one, right? But if you have a long volatility tail risk, this negatively correlated asset to stocks, you could load back up on stocks on April 1st and sleep at night 
Yeah. And that's the entire point is rebalancing these negatively correlated assets over time. That's what helps you compound wealth. So yeah, this is a thing that we didn't build. We didn't build it for March 2020. We built it for, you know, what's going to happen in 2050. Yeah. And I believe in that. And I believe that's true. Um, having listened to a ton of your stuff, being around you, looking at your presentations, almost in a weird way, it sucks not to be able to make money off of the funds concept in March. But March crystallizes your argument, right? It's right. You can look back and, and you've done this and say, hey, if, if we were active in March, this is where we would be. So you kind of have the proof in the pudding and saying, you know, for 10 years, it's just been a bull market. And now you kind of had that bullet across the face. And yeah, everybody, you know, believes there's a, this perpetual Fed put until there isn't. But, you know, what's, what's interesting is, and this is, these are my words, not yours, but that's why I kind of framed it as insurance. Because to me, your whole focus, um, not the whole focus, but a big part of the focus is controlling the bleed. The options give you the convexity, but it's just that slow bleed out that kills everybody. And that's where I look at it and say, well, you're going to buy car insurance and hope you don't wreck your car, right? And, and so nobody really has, to your point, portfolio insurance, and nobody wants to spend money to protect it. Um, so when I look at kind of the performance so far, not including March, I mean, looking at it as if you did, I mean, obviously you guys would be heroes, but if that moment doesn't come again for another 10 years, you really don't, you care, but you don't care because the, the real goal is, is that you're, you're building this portfolio insurance against that event happening again, not being able, not being prepared. And then, like you said, not being able to go long again and still sleep at yeah. So for example, I, mean, I can't talk specific numbers, but like just theoretically, the, the, the market is up twice as much as our bleed is down since launch. And so that gives you an idea. It's, it's about the pairing of these two assets. And it's, I think a good analogy is like, you know, you're in the mortgage business is like, you know, you wouldn't mortgage these multi-million dollar homes without housing insurance, right? Like right. it allows you to buy more assets. Like you could never buy a beach house without insurance. And like, that's the whole point. Like you, who would ever spend $5 million on a beach house if you didn't have insurance to pay out when the hurricane wipes it off the face right. of the earth? Right. It's just impossible. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't spend that much money on a beach house, but that's the entire thing. Like you said, we drive these fancy cars, we have these fancy houses, all because we have insurance-like products. I don't want to go down a tangent here, but mentioning, mentioning stable coins, um, yep. I, I do want to ask your opinion on crypto, but before we get there, it's interesting because Again, the more I'm around you, I've had the benefit of, of hearing you think and talk a fair amount. And you, you speak of this, you know, holding world assets. Building wealth is really the objective here that I hear frequently with you. And so the idea of stable coins and, you know, how, you know, a real stable coin would, would hold this basket of, of global assets. Again, it feels to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's partly what you're going for here is, is an opportunity to give you know, your fun exposure to entrepreneurial risk and, and go long GDP while, while still having these various elements that uh, act as kind of the wealth preservation, hence the ensemble approach, because everyone's kind, kind of trying to tackle that the same, but very different. Yeah. I think about, you know, to me, when we think about wealth preservation or building your wealth over your lifetime, to me, we've been lied to, right? We, get, we keep getting told these are investments. These are investments. Invest in the, the S&P 500, you know, invest in Vanguard, you know, invest in these things. 
they're not investments, they're your savings, right? And you need your savings to be there when you need them most. And you need them to outpace inflation. That's all you need your savings to do. The more risk you take with your savings by going into investments, the more likely you are to lose your savings and then not have them when you need them, right? And so <laughs> that's the way I, I look at the world is like, you, you can make more money at your job or your business, right? You build skills. So you keep doubling down and tripling down on your own individual skill set. You take as much idiosyncratic risk as you can to build up those savings. You keep stockpiling away for that one day when you're going to need them. And all you really need them to do is outpace inflation, right? We've been told this lie of like the stock market returns 8 to 10% for the last 40 years. Well, the last 40 years are a complete anomaly. You know, we don't know if 60, 40 portfolios are going to work in the future because nobody knows the future. And so, yeah, we think about portfolio construction as to me, it's like a stable coin, right? If I can hold the world's assets, rebalance frequently, hedge out some of the risk, then my savings can outplace inflation and be there a year from now, 10 years from now, or 100 years from now, not knowing when I'm going to need them. And so part of it, it goes back to the, it comes out of the intellectual tradition. I mean, actually, it goes all the way back to the Talmud with holding a third, a third, a third. But it really came to the forefront in portfolio construction in the 1970s with Harry Brown that talked about permanent portfolio where you held 25% each in stocks, bonds, um, gold, and cash. And then you rebalance, like say, annually or frequently, depending on the rebalancing band. But that kind of permanent portfolio would allow you to, to manage any economic environment because stocks are great when you have a growth environment. Cash is great in a recessionary environment. Gold's great in an inflation. Bonds are great in a deflation. So that's your four global macro environments. So that was basically Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. Kind of set it and forget it. And it'll be there when you need it. And it it clips along at a nice return with very low volatility and drawdowns. And that's exactly what you need. You need to reduce portfolio volatility to truly compound wealth. Um, Then kind of Ray Dalio kind of took off that mantle. Didn't didn't give any respect to Harry Brown. Didn't say he he came up with all weather because of Harry Brown or, you know, came up with this risk parity where he levered up the bond side. But, you know to each their own. And then recently, Chris Cole came out with his Dragon portfolio, which is just a modern interpretation of those portfolios as well. But at the end of the day, it's about having a, a, a properly diversified return drivers that can handle you know, growth, recession, inflation, and deflation. And you know, at the more ensemble approach you can take to that and the more frequently you can rebalance, you can preserve your savings over time. Yeah, and it's interesting the, the point you made um, again, I think the entrepreneurial connection is one of the things why, one of the reasons why I, I find conversations with you so interesting. But you made a, a very profound point in that as a business person, as an entrepreneur, and, and really I think just even as the average person who's making a nine to five, you really are doubling down on your skill set. And for me, one of the reasons I've not been much of a market participant is because you can keep the eight to 10%. The compounding I get by reinvesting in myself and my businesses and maintaining that liquidity, but it also gets to a certain point where you, you, you realize where your, your potential plateaus or your business can't scale anymore. And that's when you, you get to a point where like, well, how do I make these savings um, last long enough? And so I think it's a, it's a, you know, I, I resonate with that because it's exactly the position I have been in recently. You know, one of the reasons I'm a big fan of Real Vision, it's just giving me a, a perspective that I, up till now, haven't had the, the need to dive into. Um, yeah, I want to I get into what you said about, you brought up your pain in March and I, I put a pin in it for later. But um, <laughs> it was so funny because I've been, I've been talking to my partner, Taylor, for so long about this stuff for years. 
And then he was like, in March happened, he was like, man, you just like checked every box on that. Because what I've been telling him is the same thing. It's like, if, especially if you're an entrepreneur, put everything you can back into your business. But there's going to be a point where you have, you have excess savings left over. And to me as an entrepreneur, I want that all to go into long volatility terrorists because otherwise my, my business, my house, my girlfriend's business, my family's businesses, they're all long GDP. So I need to hedge, hedge out a lot of those existential mm-hmm. risks. So I actually put all of my savings in long volatility and terror risk for that hedge. And, uh, and it was interesting. I'd been telling Taylor that for years. And then March happens and it's like, uh, my girlfriend's a sommelier. There goes her business, right? We just said my mom owned a movie, uh, movie theater. There goes that business. My brother's a craft cocktail bartender. There goes that business. What was crazy, my sister's a, a gynecological surgeon. You'd never think that business goes away, but it's elective surgeries, gone, Go right? On. Like my dad's in the machine tool industry. You know, Taylor's wife's in the event planning, but like it all can go away just like that. And it's, it's amazing how quickly these things happen. And thankfully, a lot of it's come back, but people are still struggling. Yeah, and, and, and so to, to relate that in, in my personal situation, I was saved by the Fed. But, yep. you know, it, you know, suppressing, I, I shouldn't say I was saved, my industry was saved. And a lot of people who, who just, you know, ride that pony until it dies. When, when shit hit the fan, I honestly was curled up in a ball, not so much for myself, but for everyone else. And the average, and, and people who, who haven't been able to take advantage of the financialization of the economy. And for me, you know, again, not knowing the best way to, um, have exposure to long volatility, you know, my position was cash. So although I was watching the mortgage bond market do things it's never done before and literally freeze up and implode, which I didn't think we'd come back from, and the, the Fed really pulled out the bazookas to, to resurrect it, but I, I, I was going to be fine. I had enough liquidity where and enough confidence in myself as an entrepreneur that it was, it was really one of the, okay, what am I doing now? It's time to have that, you know, that's kind of why I asked you because it was like that conversation, you don't, you kind of kick the tires at it and it's not until the shit blows up that you're like, well, time to do something different. So, you know, with that in mind, you know, for me, the, I wasn't so much, you know, worried about what was next for me, but just everybody else. And you're still seeing that. And, and, you know, I would say, I, I don't, I don't, I think. March was a test run. I don't see how we come out of this without, you know, more chaos. But there is the potential, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, that we enter another roaring 20s because of this pent-up demand and the liquidity that I, I, let's not get into the fact that when the Fed increases its balance sheet, it's not printing money, yada, yada. But it does create this emotional factor that does create, you know, spending and, and, and credit growth. So being that you are long volatility and that this fund is somewhat designed for these moments like March, what are your concerns that we're, you know, we're entering a, a new roaring 20s? This is my, my favorite question on multiple levels. Uh, one is, and I'll start with my favorite part, is I have no clue. <laughs> and the secret is nobody else does either, right? Like I, I look at like even just next year alone, it's like, is 2021 the year of the default? Or the year just YOLO, everybody, let's go crazy. Like right. nobody has any idea, right? It's yeah. like, it feels that bifurcated, but that also because it feels that bipolar, maybe it's just muddle along. Maybe it's option C, like just nobody knows, right? I mean, it does, it does feel like a setup for the roaring 20s. It definitely feels that way, but I've gotten hopefully really good about not caring about my own personal opinion. 
I try to construct these holistic portfolios that can handle any environment walking forward. That way I don't need to predict the future. I mean, that's, it's amazing how a lot of times we just get caught up in everybody that can pontificate and predict the future when nobody can. But yeah. what we can do is we can handle how we construct our portfolios to manage our savings no matter what comes along. And so, I, yeah, I love to have a lot of personal opinions, but I can't help that, that little bastard in the back of my head going, you have no idea what you're talking about. And so, and nobody else does either. And so, you know, so I start from that premise of just pure epistemic humility. If nobody knows the future, what do I need to do with my savings to make sure I can manage? And that's, that's the way I look at the world. I know that's not exciting. It doesn't lead to fun conversations. It's just a turd in the punch bowl at the party. I get it, but. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of, of that analogy, which I've heard you use before. um, And I've also heard you you use the, uh, I forget exactly how you put this, but you, you've referred to yourself and perhaps entrepreneurs as, as basically kind of having a disease, right? And, yeah. and, and you said yeah, you're, you're a lot of fun at the party because you're just always poking holes and shit. And, um, but at the same time, like you said, you wake up every day and, and you, you can't wait for more abuse. I think it's interesting to me because I, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and then you always have a lot of entrepreneurs as well. And I think, you know, for, for most of my life, you know, I'm 41 now. And for, you know, the first half of my life, entrepreneurship wasn't cool. It was not a cool thing, you know, in like the 80s and 90s. You know, recently became cool when, you know, Zuckerberg hits a billion in Facebook and then runs away with it from there. Like all the, you know, the 99, like 99, 2000, like started that idea. But so... As a society and culture, with the, especially with Instagram and TikTok and everything, we really exalt the entrepreneur and everybody puts entrepreneur in their bio. But I think true-bred entrepreneurs, you're just kind of, I don't know if it's uh, you know, nurture or nature, but you just can't help yourself. And so it's, it's a form of disease. Like who would, who would want to do this? And so I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, a feature. I think it's a bug. I think it's a, it's a terrible way to live your life. And we probably have like, less dopamine or serotonin where we have to pursue like these impossible, like you're Don Quixote tilting at windmills. Yeah. Everybody thinks you're a moron. Like, and you're like, I'll show you one day. Like you're an idiot. Like there's no reason to do any of this. But if you can't help yourself, you just wake up and you just keep doing the same, you bashing your head into a wall every single day until you, like I said, you suck less every day. That's the goal as far as I'm concerned. And it's interesting to me, you also have to be the person though that never, there's no there there. Like you've, you've been in this game now long enough and you're starting, you're starting to know and realize is like you never reach that plateau where you get to coast, right? That's what I know if you're not a purebred entrepreneur, you go, oh, I'm going to get to that plateau and I'm going to cash my chips in and coast. It just doesn't exist. It's a slow and gradual decline. There is no coasting on your, and resting on your laurels. So either, you know, I would say this too, is like every day you're either a firefighter or they, they throw all these complex hurdles at you. And so you either love complex problem solving or you don't. And that's what the joy of, to me of entrepreneurship is creative problem solving. Like every day there's a new problem. You're like, wait, what happened? Who did what? Like, yeah. that's impossible. Like, why would somebody do that? That doesn't make <laughs> any sense. You know, like, but that's what I'm saying. You know how it comes. It's like every single day. But unless you flip it and your mind is sadistic and enjoys those creative, that creative outlet, then you need to find another creative outlet. And that's just, the way I think about it now after, and it took me a long way to get there. You know, it's just, you know, I, I thought too, I'd probably be navel gazing on a beach somewhere, but that's just not going to happen. 
<laughs> so if anyone, if anyone ever asked you why they should invest in your fund, I'm going to give you that last 90 seconds and just, <laughs> just hand it to them with the crescendo of everyone. You know, I wish I could be naval on a, on a beach philosophizing, but, um, and the, and the reality is it, it's, it is a slow decline because we, you know, have a finite amount of energy and that's one of the, the realities of, I think also starting early because you, you need to make the mistakes and, and build up that muscle memory young. Cause by the time you get to, I'm 40, so we're in our, in our forties, by the time you get here, you need to be running at such a high level of efficiency because you don't have the, the fuel to just to go 10 rounds. It, it is like an MMA fight. You need to go in and execute and take the guy out with all kinds of grappling techniques in three rounds, because it's not a boxing match anymore. You, you can't do 15 rounds. Um, but like you said, though, you're, you've, you've learned through time the efficiency of those movements, right? You're that old guy in the ring or that old guy on the field that knows like he's not wasting any energy. He's been right. there. He's done that. You're at least getting more efficient. Um, you may not be getting smarter or better, but you're getting more efficient. <laughs> Hopefully. Okay. Hopefully, right. That's like why I love, I actually, uh, I, I tend to, I don't think, I don't know why people get pissed off about this, but I love, I love e-commerce for young entrepreneurs to learn entrepreneurship with fairly low stakes. Yeah. I think e-com is a fairly easy entrepreneurial business. And because your first entrepreneurial endeavors, you're going to make so many mistakes and you're going to learn tons. I think e-com is like a great platform, anything, flipping stuff on Craigslist, all that stuff to just build up those entrepreneurial chops to know that you're going to be okay and you're going to make it through. Yeah, I would, I would, I mean, e-commerce, like you said, is, is, it's so, there's a lot of level playing field there, but I don't care what it is. Just pick something, go screw up. Um, so without overlooking it, crypto, um, you know, it, it being that you, we've, we talked about the fund and, and, and kind of the overarching theme of it, does crypto really have a place in that? And it, does it play as, as this insurance hedge or is it, is it a Ponzi or what's your take at least Bitcoin per se to start? Okay. So we argued all for 2019 on whether you include Bitcoin in a long volatility terrorist fund. Mm -hmm. Is Bitcoin long volatility terrorist? It hasn't really, you know, until March, we didn't have a way of showing if it would be or not, right? And, you know, one could argue if gold is or not too as well. Yeah. So we, we actually yeah. argued about including, including gold too. And so we decided not to include it. And of course, right now it would look like great if we would include it, but that's, that's the benefit of the hindsight. And that wouldn't have been the right decision um, in hindsight either. It's like you, you try to stick to your knitting and what you do. But also with the caveat that we also knew the bulk of our investors are entrepreneurs 25 to 40 that have had their first liquidity event or you know, are trying to do something with their savings that kind of get what we do. Like, like you and I have talked about, we built that education curve over time and Taylor's done an amazing job at that. But we know a lot of our investors already personally hold Bitcoin and gold. And so that was part of not including it as well. Now, if somebody like um, my sister and husband that are surgeons are like, I want you to take care of our holistic portfolio, I'm going to hold a little gold in Bitcoin. And I'll get to why maybe in a second. Um, my history of Bitcoin goes back years as well. And to me, it was always an option, right? I'm always looking for options or arbitrages. Yeah. And to me, it was a, Bitcoin was a long options play. I didn't care about, I don't care about any of the philosophy. I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. You know, people can argue about all that stuff. It was just a pure options trade. And so that it made sense to me on the options basis. Um, I think it's, you know, fascinating then, you know, what Ethereum and, you know, other altcoins or shitcoins are doing. I mean, as far as the businesses they're building, but it's, it's modern VC at the end of the day, right? Yeah. And so 
the way we like to look at in a portfolio construction sense is that, you know, I talked about holding this basket of the world's assets and talking about having stuff that can handle um, growth, recession, inflation, and deflation. But what actually kills portfolios over time is not actually what they're invested in. It's actually um, currency devaluation or currency confiscation or wars. That's actually what's destroyed generational wealth over time. And so outside of that portfolio, we do believe in holding a little bit of gold or Bitcoin as a, um, a fiat, like just fiat, pure fiat hedge, not like light inflation or medium inflation. We're talking like just an absolute all out like war or destruction of your fiat currency. If you're trying to manage multi-generational wealth, you're going to need a little bit of gold or Bitcoin to offset some of that fiat risk. Yeah. So it's interesting at that point, what you're really hedging is the stupidity of governments and humanity. And, and it, you can see that already working in places like Venezuela and Argentina. Um, they haven't had the, the catastrophe of war yet, but they've had the complete destruction of their economy and their, their fiat money. So it's, it's tough when you're looking at making the argument for Bitcoin in a U.S. dollar economy because it, it, it's not acting necessarily as a hedge against volatility. But then when you look in, in some of these other markets, um, good luck convincing them otherwise because it's basically saved a lot of people's wealth. Um, yeah, yes and, yes and no. I, I agree and disagree. Is like, that's part of like you're saying, if you studied history or comparative religions or whatever, like you get to learn about these things through history or, or like you and I have, if you've lived in Argentina, Brazil, Turkey, and, and been through these hyperinflations, um, it leaves an indelible impression, especially the people that are actually from there. Um, but I always thought was interesting is a lot of the Bitcoin maximalists or, or different people in the crypto space have always talked about like Venezuela, Argentina, Brazil, all this stuff. And I'm like, have you ever lived there? You know, and I always ask him that because like to me, when I was living in Argentina, Brazil, or even Turkey in the late 90s, they were going through a hyperinflation is there was money changers on every corner because they're like, what's the average person to do? They can't get out like they're getting screwed. And I'm like every average person in that country is changing into USD on the street corner. Every building has on the street corner a money changer, right? And they also have black markets. We have different exchange rates versus the real rate. And so I, I get a little, uh, I, you know, I take a little bit of umbrage with the, the pedantic nature of the crypto space when they've never lived in these countries. Right, fair enough. But also, like you're saying, like those, those people do need a hedge. Um, and, but they also figured it out throughout history. And then, I, and then when we say the, and I'm not sure you were saying this, but when you say the stupidity of governments and people, you know, people like to really point to sound money and them running the printing press right now, which there's no printing press that they're right. running, let's be honest. Right. And so it's not just that. It's just historically, you don't know when a war confiscation or fiat is default is around the corner. It doesn't have to do with you thinking you know how the money operations right. of the Fed and the central bank work. Right. It's just like historical perspective should tell you. And, and if in that scenario, you don't need much gold or Bitcoin. It's a huge optionality, right? You just need a little bit because it's going to spike dramatically versus your local fiat currency in that scenario. I, I would agree completely. I think what's going on right now in crypto, and um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And you've made it clear that that's not part of your investment thesis either. But um, I feel like there's enough momentum behind the Bitcoin net. Hold on one second. Can you call back, please? That's proof that I'm in quarantine. They call, make sure that <laughs> they call, make sure your mental health is is stable. How are you feeling? 
You're not, you know, you're not punching yourself in a dark corner, are you? Um, no, I did that in March. I'm okay now. <laughs> so um, a lot of the narrative in, in, in the Bitcoin crypto space, I mean, you're seeing what it's doing. It's all-time highs. I think that can continue. And so it's at that point a trade, right? And it's, and it's not this hedge that people are using as part of the, the, the momentum and the narrative. Um, but to, to the same de- degree that we're talking about these other countries and, and you live there, I've lived there. Um, it's also, I think, a part of, okay, if, if you're exchanging your Bolivar for US dollars, fantastic. But what happens when you want to leave? And, and so again, I'm not saying that's why Bitcoin should be 50,000. I'm saying why it potentially is a good hedge, especially already proven hedge in a lot of these places when they want to leave and they need to bring their wealth with them, they're not going to, you know, stuff an emerald up their ass or, or, you know, put a bunch of, you know, of gold who, and who knows where. So um, I, I think it, it does serve in some case, to your point, in those moments of chaos, it's very transportable. Um, I, agree, I agree with that, but I'm just wondering, like, who's leaving? So typically the people that are leaving have been able to amass enough wealth where they already had U.S. bank accounts and everything. Like they, they already have ways of circumventing the space if you have enough money, right? But then the people that don't have enough money to leave are rarely leaving or it's a very unique scenario or they happen to be in a northern state in Mexico where they can cross the border by foot. So I don't know, like I just, like all of these like outlier um, percentages or scenarios, I'm not, I'm not certain how much they exist, but I do think that, yeah, gold's a great way of like as a digital gold or preserver of wealth to move across, you know, borders but I'm, I'm always curious of, you know, how, how often that's happened in history. Yeah, I, I, I like that pushback. You and I will have to dive into that another time. <laughs> um, episode two. I can't help it. Yeah, I know. It's your, your disease. We get it. Um, the, the local health department should be calling your house and checking in on you. Exactly. Um, so I guess one last question I have for you. Appreciate the time. It's been a, it's been a fun chat for me. Um, being that, you know, even in the approach you've taken with your fund, there's still a, a minimum to entry, right? Um, yeah. You still need to be accredited and God, that's such an awful thing in itself, but also part of another conversation. Um, how would you say that, you know, someone who doesn't have the capacity to invest in your fund and you're a firm believer of entrepreneurialism and, you know, your big theme that I've taken away talking with you, even in this conversation, it's, it's wealth preservation is really your passion um, what's the best hedge do you think for, you know, the future for people to, to build, you know, who are building wealth or even just have a little bit of a nest egg, you know, what's the ultimate way for them to, to try to preserve that in such a, a, a strange world that we're in over financialized world. And it's, it's hard to keep pace. How does, does the average guy even have a, a swing at this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'll go back. First of all, like you said, as you, I don't know if you recall when you be, uh, magically became an accredited investor, they didn't start handing out 20 IQ points, right? Like you didn't get a diploma, like nothing happened, right? Um, you didn't change in any su- substantial way. Um, yeah, so we, we wish that we didn't have those rules. We wish, you know, we could put it in the ETF, but the, there's, no, there's no way of making that possible. I mean, just the regulations are too strict. Um, and so part of it is, I think it goes back to everything I've been saying is I believe in an ensemble approach. And because you don't know what the future is going to look like and you don't know what path dependencies it's going to take, you maybe have to look at all of your assets and get a little bit more philosophical of like, 
is this long GDP, right? So is my business long GDP? Yes. Is my real estate long GDP? Yes. Are my private investments in companies? Yeah. Like, and so maybe I need a hedge for that. And so you, you alluded to, even if that hedge is cash, of holding more cash on the books, maybe a little bit of gold, a little bit of Bitcoin, maybe trying to find a way to tail risk, you know, like um, it's difficult, but there, there, there's ways out there. But what, what I'm saying more than anything is balancing out your, your long GDP risk with some long volatility on the other side of the books, whether, like, whether it's as simple as cash or not. So it, it, you, there's an ensemble approach that one could take, um, even if you couldn't access a, a fund like ours or the managers that we allocate to. Um, there's also, um, I really like Matt Faber's tail ETF. Now, when you're doing a vanilla put rolling like that, it's going to have some higher expenses and everything, but it's also going to it's going to have some convex returns in March. So it's about what portion do you put that in your overall portfolio? So there's other ways and there's commodity trend followers and things like that to try to hedge out maybe some of the potential inflation risks and whether that shows up in different forms of commodities. So there's, there's ways of getting it. It's just, unfortunately, due to all the regulations, they make it you know, pretty prohibitive to the average investor. Do me a favor before we wrap up, because I think... Yep. Somebody listening to you that's, um, even myself, first couple of times I heard you phrase it, I, it took a while to sink in. You know, when you're referring to um, entrepreneurs, for example, as being long GDP, it, I, can, yeah. you, can you break that down? Because I think it's so important because people don't realize that they're long anything if they're not in right. the market, right? So uh, put some color into that for me if you could. Well, also, young entrepreneurs don't realize they're long anything either. They think it's their pure genius. And I've been there many times myself. But it's a rising tide lifts all boats. And so that's what happens in long GDP. Like as we saw the previous uh, 12 years before March, is long GDP just means that your long growth of the overall economy. And part of the overall economy growth is based on rates coming down, uh, credit becoming uh, loose and, and credit awash in the system. All of those things build up. So a rising tide lifts all boats. Your job, you just keep getting raises. Your your house, your rates on your house keep coming down. You can buy a bigger and bigger house every time. Um, your business just keeps growing without you know a lot of management to it. Everything is very easy in a long GDP environment. And then all of a sudden, it's a, you referenced it for Minsky, as Hyman Minsky came up with the idea, is that actually the um, stability breeds instability. So it runs on for 10 to 12 years and it's just this really stable, low volatility environment where everybody's happy and we're all partying and it's a great time and money is just awash in the system. And then that creates an air pocket of instability. And when it crashes and liquidity dries up, then the party's over. And you know, hopefully then that resets and we go on to a party again. And so that's kind of being long GDP is you're just long the overall economy, your long growth, your long credit, your long leverage, you know, every, it's a, literally a rising tide lifts all boats. And during those, those times, you can get confused and think you're a great entrepreneur where it's just been a, a very uh, loose monetary environment that makes it easy for you to grow your business. And, and we've all been there. Yeah, and, and I promise, man, I'm going to let you go. But um, <laughs> you, you touched on something else that I really want you to get in for the sake of what you're doing. And, and that's this, you know, we're kind of going on this smooth path and, and it, it's when we hit these air pockets that we have this crash or this breakdown. Um, how has the financialization of the, the global economy um, basically made those air pockets, you know, more volatile, more dangerous. And, and 
more or less kind of contributing to a, a catastrophic a catastrophic event like we had in March. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing to say, but you have more uh, you have too much capital chasing too too little liquidity, and you're like those things sound the same, but they're not right. And so I've had this kind of overarching thesis since like around 2000 that the economy's come so financialized and it's everything's a derivative of something of another derivative that you can actually only hedge a lot of your risk through derivatives. Because if everything's a derivative on a derivative and we have this huge notional exposure in the markets of, of, of tens of trillions of dollars, but there's very little cash underlying that. And that's the liquidity is that liquidity eventually has to dry up and it crashes back down to that cash level. And that's when you get the restart. And so that's what I'm saying. You have so much um, digital financialized products, you know, trying to make a return, but the the margin of liquidity underlying those is is becoming smaller and smaller as every year goes on. So that's kind of that that trade off that you see. Like we like said, we only trade the cash settled futures and options market. It's interesting; they're very capacity constrained. So you can only probably hedge a few billion dollars in the cash settled markets. So what does that tell you about the notional value of the tri- tens of trillions of assets out there? Like it's very scary when you think about it that way. It's like, okay, if we had to go to cash today, we can. A lot of the assets can't. And that's when when liquidity dries up like March, that's what you see. And part of your question was, you have all these different trading styles and, and ways of investing that are uh, dominated by leverage and low volatility. And so when liquidity dries up, they all have to delever at the same time and they're all running through that fire exit. And that's what created the fastest sell-off in, in, in market history. You know, we went you know, down 35% in a matter of weeks and we, that hasn't happened before. And it's because you have so much, like Minsky said, all this stability has bred up so much leverage in the system um, that it just takes a tiny pinprick to burst that bubble. And it, it didn't need to be COVID. It could have been anything at this point. And then that you know, creates a, uh, a liquidity cascade that, that brings things back to the cash basis. And then, you know, if, depending on the Fed's level of confidence that instills in the system, then the party starts back up again. Yeah, well, based on their response and the way things look like they're going to continue going, uh, I think it, it bodes very well for your fund um, because the, the amount of leverage doesn't seem to be um, coming under control anytime soon. And that liquidity cash basis is is not growing at all. So perhaps as I asked you before, you know, maybe March really was just the test run. Uh, so with that being said, Jason, how do we learn more about your fund, um, Mutiny Fund, all the good stuff about what you're doing there, how to follow you, keep in contact with you, et cetera? Sure. So if you just go to mutinyfund.com, um, you can find our podcast on there too, where we, it's really geeky, but we interview like all of our managers in our fund. So if you want a deep dive, it's a great spot. I highly recommend all the writing uh, my partner Taylor Pearson does on our site as well. Um, otherwise, you can also find me um, at Jason Mutiny on Twitter. And other than that, yeah, it's just anywhere in the, the world finds us. You know, I hope to see you again soon. Who knows uh, your, how your quarantine and the vaccines are going to go. But yeah, hopefully we're going to have many more uh, visits in person coming in 2021. Yeah, hopefully. Um, one last thing I want to add is the podcast is super geeky, but it's awesome. So you, you do have to eat the elephant one bite at a time. Um, hopefully this interview kind of gets people somewhat prepared for that, but uh, I think it's fantastic. It's, it's one of the best podcasts that I've listened to in a while. 
Um, it's way less of what you and I are doing, which is fun. It's educational and entertaining, but you guys really go right at the throat of it. And I think that's super valuable for anyone who's looking to invest. And I think it's also very comforting for your investors. So you guys are doing a great job there as well. So congrats. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Jay, appreciate your time, man. Let's keep in touch and uh, maybe we'll be in, in person uh, when this all blows over. You can, uh, you can keep recording this if you want and you can choose to include it or not, but I'm curious your thoughts. So Taylor and I were talking about the other day, what he really wants in real estate is basically a 10-year lease, right? He doesn't care about the appreciation. He just doesn't want the depreciation of a mortgage or whatever. So, I keep, so he's like, basically he wants a collar, right? He wants to sell a call and buy a put and just be able to pay his rent, right? But, but he wants like a 10-year lease or buying a house because he doesn't want to get kicked out or have the rent going up, right? And so as you know, it's like impossible to create a localized collar. So I was trying to like be really creative about what we, a way of, of doing it. We, we talked about things like maybe if you sold 30% equity in the property and use that as your down payment and they got part of the upside and the downside, you know, we we're trying to say, you know, I'm trying to show him too that if he, um, if you just get a 30 year fixed at like below 3%, that's like paying rent and you don't have to, it's a mark to model. It's not a mark to market loss. You don't have to sell when it goes down and you have a semi four savings plan. But I'm just curious, uh, knowing your skill set, like what's the, what's the creative way to kind of solve this problem or is there a solution to it? Well, I, I personally, looking back at Mark, for example, uh, I'm so sensitive to liquidity. So I'm not a big fan of, of real estate because it, it's so illiquid and you're, you're really locked up. Um, and my philosophy on real estate, if it's not producing income, it's just a big fat liability. And so I'd rather have assets generating enough income to pay for me to live wherever I want to live. Um, and with that in mind, if you're going to lock up that situation at the best price possible, maybe you, you work out some kind of lease option. It's the same type of you know, play that you guys are doing in the synthetic markets. Um, so you lock in your price, but you don't really have, you walk away if it's not something you want to be a part of. Um, what, I'm, what I believe, and again, we have no idea, but I, I think we're on a, a path that has high probabilities that we see, let's say the 10-year get to zero. Um, and I think you will see 15-year rates sub 1% on a fixed mortgage. It gets really, really hard at that point. If, if you're looking at a, uh, an asset or a home or a market that hasn't just completely blown out, like I would never buy in, in, in Hawaii. In Oahu, um, particularly like downtown Oahu, I just I just don't I just don't see the return for the value. Um, but and there's other markets like you know places in California are just so silly. But there's going to be places where um, I think you still have quality of life, and you can borrow at sub one percent. It almost gets to the point where like who cares what it, it does in the future. Um, yeah, but I wonder, like, like you're saying, um, so he lives in Austin. So right now, like, that was my first recommendation was like land contract, lease to own and everything. But as you know, those are usually more distressed sellers. You can't really do that in a hot market like Austin. Um, but also, as you know, like as you've taught people is like, if he locks in a third year, like 2.75 now and rates do go lower, like he can always, you know, once it gets over the hurdle rate of the actual refinance costs, he could keep refinancing lower, you know, as, as rates came down lower. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, thanks for teeing that up, whether intentionally or accidentally, but that's basically what I've done with my clients for over a decade. Um, and you can do that 
and I don't know how long this is going to last, but it's been a, a fun play for me and, and my company and my clients. But you can do that without any slippage, without any transactional costs. There's so much juice in the, in the MBS market that you can give up such a, a small fraction of interest and eliminate your costs. So this isn't accurate, but just for example's sake, um, maybe your par rate is 2.5% on a 30-year fixed. Well, maybe you take a 3% and it doesn't cost you $10,000 in closing costs. On the, right. on the premise that based on this, this call it forecast of where bond yields are potentially going because of any number of factors, um, that you're going to refinance that 3% to 2.5% for free in six to eight months when more or less the coupon that that's being packaged in starts to trade at a premium. And you're just really following the, the, the and you're seeing it right now. The, the one and a half percent coupon is now trading. There's no reason that should be trading right now, except for the fact that people are front running, arbitraging, and the Fed is injecting liquidity into it. But we don't, we don't need to be putting 1.75s into the market. We, we don't. Um, there's, there's enough um, elasticity there that, you know, the, there's people who haven't refinanced yet. And, and we're at two and a half, two point seven five on a free loan. So I think, I think you can. Um, basically, what you're doing at that point is is you're expecting rates to be lower, and you're locking in price today. Right? You're going to buy in Austin because you think it's going to go up 40 percent, or maybe even two x in a certain period of time. But you're also expecting over the next twenty four to thirty six months that you're going to continually be able to reduce your interest rate costs to almost nothing. So you're locking in price on the expectation that your, you know, your carry costs are, are, are going to reduce drastically without any cost to do so. Now, most people don't think that's realistic, that you can refinance for free. And so most people kind of have that um, you know, recency bias or just personal experience that holds them back from taking that approach because they feel like, well, every time I refi, I need to you know, be shipping off 200 basis points or it's not worth it. And Dude, if you can hit a base hit and, and squeeze, you know, 150 bucks out every 12 months, and it doesn't cost you a single thing, and you can do that without reamortizing, you're, you're just you're just bleeding the bond market. You're you're basically just picking them apart slowly without them noticing. Exactly. How do you how do you do that without cost? Like I said, you're you're, you're basically giving up. It's a trade, right? The market says they want this rate, and you say to the market, "Well, how about you give me a slightly higher rate, and I don't pay you anything for it." Right. So it's just a cascading. Hold on a second. Hi, I'm in the middle of a call. Can you please give me an, an hour? Thank you. Um, I'm okay. So like, so it's, <laughs> I'm, it's, not, it's, I'm not killing myself. It's really that, that Delta doesn't change. So you initially take the higher rate knowing that you're going to, as it cascades down, you're going to refi too. It's just, it's, it's proportionally the same. You just initially took the higher rate. Um, well, look at it this way. You could chase rates or let them come to you, right? So you could um, do what most people do and get sold on the idea that low rate means a better loan when really you have this recuperation period. If, if right. I'm going to, and who cares what the rate is? If I say, hey, I can get you X for free or you can take Y, which is $200 a month savings, but it's going to cost you 10 grand. Well, it's going to take you four and a half years before you even save a single dollar. 
And in the, right. in, in the past six, seven years, that's a losing trade, not only every four years, but basically every 14 months, right? So you've raced and chased and, and paid a premium to, to the market, to really Wall Street. You overpaid them for something that they would have gave you at a, at a discount in the near future. And most people don't know that because most people in, in the mortgage business are, they used to sell cell phones six months ago, right? And now they're like, well, shit, I'm making 20 bucks a phone when I could be making two grand a refi. And so they transition into, into the mortgage space with no understanding of the game, no understanding of markets, certainly no understanding of how mortgage-backed securities and the way these things are, are priced and, and, and the liquidity premiums in them are what really drive rates. They're not making any hedge or, or, or really consulting their clients on what to do next. They're selling rate of the day. And most people get caught up into that and, and they're like, oh, rates are so low. And I'm like, yeah, they are. Can you imagine how much lower they're going to go? Um, and the trade-off is relatively small if you're, if you're playing that timeline, if you're playing the long game. Because let's say you decide not to take the two and a half or whatever rate it is and, and pay the $10,000 in closing costs, and you take the slightly higher rate for free, well, first of all, you've got the, the, inver- the opposite of that, the inverse of that. You now have a roughly 50-month runway before that turns out to be a bad idea, right? You could have mm. paid the money and wait 50 months to recoup your cost, or you could do the loan for free and basically have a cushion of 50 months where at any point, if you get that lower rate for cheaper than you would have paid, it was a winning trade. Um, yes, you could, you're, you're, getting, you're basically buying like four-year options. So you're getting long-term that. options on the market. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but with their mortgage in their house, with the understanding that if that option doesn't work out, it's not like they're just out the premium. It's like they have a continual bleed because they're continually paying the higher rate. But we aren't talking, you know, me offering them a 3% when they could have got a one, right? We're talking the spread of difference on a monthly payment is so insignificant that if you can't burden, if you can't handle the burden of of another $100 to $150 a month, six years from now, when the reality is you're not going to be in the home anyway. The average, nobody, I put this is how I explain it to people. There's nobody buying 30 year bonds right now, whether it's treasury bonds or mortgage backed security bonds, with the expectation that they're holding that to, um, to expiration, right? And, and the average duration of a mortgage is, I mean, nowadays is probably two years if you're lucky, but you know, maybe if you stretch it out over the life of mortgages, six years. So you're not, I don't care what you tell me, you and I talk about, you know, all the time we did in this conversation, not knowing the future. It, it takes a, a long time for you to realize that you don't know shit. But the irony is, is the average person thinks they know where they're going to be in 30 years when it's comedy to me because they can't even tie their shoelaces correctly, let alone plan 30 months out. And, we're, and, they're, and they're making these decisions and they know nothing about the market for 30 years. And one of the things that, that scares me the most is that this, it, it's the moral hazard, right? What did we really learn in 2008 when you can have people selling real estate and people buying real estate feel like, still feel like they're geniuses and all you do is buy real estate? And, and it's, it's just a fleecing of, of you know, the average Joe who's 
you could either rent or you could either own, but with owning, you don't, you know, you've got maintenance costs and everything else. And they're, they're getting crushed with the, you know, the constant refine. They're going to refi anyways, because they need the savings. Um, they're just yeah. getting sold on, a, on an approach that's completely inefficient. It's like, it's like accepting base rates. Like you said, is like, if the average mortgage or the average time in the home, six to eight years, you have to accept that you're going to be average. It's like, I don't think I'm going to get married, but I should start saving for an engagement ring because I'm likely to be average, right? Let me ask you a different way. So we have the opposite problem, right? So I think Matt Paper wrote a great piece about how most RIAs or investment managers are quadruple leveraged to the market, right? Because like their clients are long, long stocks, they're personally long stocks, their business for their clients, long, their company's long stocks, so their salary's long stocks. So they're quadruple leveraged to the market, so they should actually be buying tail risk. So if you're running a long ball tail risk fund, you have the opposite problem. So what we talk about sometimes is like, you should essentially be full out leveraged long your home or real, residential real estate because you have this ballast for when those sell-offs happen you have cash, you have this convex cash position. So that's kind of the question is like, what do you do? And if you're in that scenario, are you looking to get a 100% LTV, 30-year fixed, maybe take you know that little higher spread so you could refinance over time without paying the fees? Like, what would you do in that scenario? Like, assuming, but like you said, totally agree with you. You want liquidity and all that, but let's yeah, just yeah. say you have businesses, you have all these other things that has liquidity. You have this convex liquid position when sell-offs happen. And so you're not actually, and you, so you're trying not to put any uh, money down because you don't want that to be locked up. So like, what do you do? Yeah. I mean, I, I get the, I get the point you're making in this scenario you're setting up. So you, you've got your, all your corners covered. So how, how do you go long? Right. Um, this is kind of why I asked the question. It's also kind of why I've, I've always had a soft bar, soft spot in my heart for people that, you know, don't have the disease that we have, right? Don't, don't abuse ourselves every day trying to figure this thing out because they're the only thing they've been fed is maybe a 401k and you buy a house. Um, and for me, the thing is, is and it's almost with religious fervor. I try to tell dude, this is Kiyosaki stuff, right? If it's not producing income, you have a liability and I'll show you tons and tons of data and information that shows you buying a house and living in as your primary residence is no better than if you were just renting. And I get you want to be able to pick what color goes on the flipping wall and start buying one bedroom condos in Phoenix until it produces enough income or in Albuquerque that you can go buy the house that you want. But if you're talking about investing and investing in real estate because it's it's this great asset class and yada yada. Um, I just think there's better ways where you can be more nimble, more liquid, and get way more convexity or higher returns when an opportunity presents itself in real estate. And I think real estate has been, um, for this period of time, arguably a good hedge against a number of things. It's, it's held its value to a certain extent, um, but I just don't think it's, it's built wealth outside of people who build portfolios that produce income, multifamily, commercial, uh, developers, et cetera. So for me, and again, perhaps it's the masochistic entrepreneurial side, I'd rather, I'd rather roll the dice on things that have, you know, that are more asymmetric. And I, 
I think crypto, not Bitcoin, but the stuff that's going on in crypto, and I think you're right, it's, it's VC. Like it's an opportunity to invest in tech without it being purely in the hands of a bunch of guys in Silicon Valley. But that's just one example. And I think if people took a little more time to pursue their passions and their interests, I think there's greater asymmetric returns in building a business that you're passionate about than buying a house that is the same as, as your neighbors because you bought in some stupid ass PUD, right? Um, yeah. And, and so with that in mind, having something like a, a mutiny fund that provides this tail risk that gives you that insurance, that gives you the savings that you need so that you can take a portion of it and, and, and kind of go balls out and, and, and take big risks with the potential of an asymmetric return. Um, number one, it, it's kind of within, within reason because you have a majority of your wealth put in, in various things that are supposed to be you know, creating and protecting your savings, but you're, you're giving yourself an opportunity to, to hit a home run. It's something you understand because you're passionate about it, not because of some, someone else. Look, I look at real estate as a Ponzi. The, the, the realtor bought into the, the multi-level marketing scheme a long time ago and bought a house she can't or he can't afford. And so they need to find a shitload of people dumb enough to do the same thing to pay the mortgage for. Them. And eventually especially in a credit-based economy, that implodes because you're not, you're, not, you're not creating value in the economy. You're not changing things. Um, and, and so, I wonder too, though, if you, if you think about accepting base rates though in reality, right? It's one thing to say, you know, say you have all your corners covered, you have all these eight metric bets, you have all this income, but the base rates are your wife's going to want a house. So <laughs> it's every, like, what do you... Yeah, so everyone, I... I, I I eventually get my talons into, right? Clients I've worked with for years and eventually become indoctrinated. This and even people who work for me. Um, again, I'm, I'm a single guy. I'm in quarantine in, in Sydney because I can sit in a hotel for 14 days and then they'll let me loose in the city. And I love living in the city. And, you know, not many people have that flexibility. I get it. Um, that's, the, that's a totally different pushback, right? And I think I don't care what the cost is. People should be investing in one thing more than anything, and that's their happiness. A happy wife is a happy home. So if, if that's an investment you need to make for the sanctity and sanity of, of the household, it's a totally different conversation. And squeezing out margin, or the margin you could have squeezed out because you were, you were renting and building a real estate portfolio maybe doesn't make sense. Um, mm. but I still, I'm, I'm still not going to, that's a totally different decision. It's, it's an investment in your family. You're not building wealth in real estate. No, it's not, it's, it's a non-economic decision. Right. I would, I, and unfortunately I have to go here, but I'll, I'll think if one of the insane things I think about often, and I think you're kind of hinting on this, is I always wonder, I'm like, why do we have mortgages? Right. And if, if these mortgages and the decline of rates and mortgages over the last 30 years has you know, it's amazing to me how people just don't see the actual price appreciation in real estate becomes because of the decline in the actual mortgage rate that you can actually buy more house. That's where the, that's where the price appreciation the comes from. Yeah. Well, right. Not and to interrupt you, but I, I tell people all the time, yeah. go ahead and sell your house and then buy it back and see how much, you know, how much wealth you've gained. Exactly. And so part of it though makes me think like in, when I, when I have those insane navel gazing moments is like, why do we have mortgages? And like, it was a good idea that maybe had perverse unintended consequences. And for the next, you know, the Zoomer generation, 
is maybe we have to jubilee mortgages to go back to real actual uh, what you could afford with your income. And if you do that, housing takes an 80% haircut essentially overnight, right? And then then you think about, okay, if it takes a, what's the 20% value of the actual housing market combined to what a Zoomer actually makes at a job, it starts to line up again. And that's just just a scary, insane thought. But it's one of the things I wonder about often. Yeah. And, and like you said, you got to go. But you look at the, the multiples of the median income um, to right. buy a medium house and it just keeps going up and up. And, and it, it's, again, I, I think that it eventually is coming. Um, but I, you and I may be dead by then. But I think um, yeah. it's a possibility that this, this, this shenanigans keep going on and on. But the housing market here in the U.S., exists. My success of my present livelihood exists because the current central banking system and fractional reserve banking system that can create credit out of thin air, not money, credit, um, has created a massive backstop um, to what used to be government-sponsored entities that are now government-owned entities, i.e. Fannie Mae, that's buying up 80% of mortgages. And the, the the proof it was in the pudding in March when shit hit the fan and we had this big clog up and nothing was moving and the Fed came in and, and, and resurrected it and pumped liquidity into the mortgage-backed security space. Anything that was not part of that machine and anything that could not meet those conforming guidelines and be sold into an MBS that Fannie Mae or Ginnie Mae was buying, and even Ginnie Mae was going through a tougher struggle because of the um, guaranteed payments and forbearance, different conversation, but anything that didn't have the guaranteed backing of the government disappeared. So that's all your non, uh, your portfolio stuff, so your non-conforming stuff. You had this entire market called non-QM that was um, growing and evolving, that was providing loans to self-employed and doctors and people like that who normally couldn't get a loan because of the way their tax returns look. Poof, gone. Now it's starting to slowly claw back, but it's basically subprime rates, right? Yeah, you can get a mortgage for five and a half percent when the conforming guy is getting one at two and a half percent. So it, to me, it just showed the fact that the, the, the massive instability in the credit markets associated with real estate because you don't really, it's to your point, exactly what you're talking about. Here's your liquidity, here's the cash, and here's everything else, right? right. And when it was time to, to you know bring them two together, it, it was a frightening scene. So. I think they'll continue to, and this is the conspiracy side of things and just the, the corruption side of things. Real estate's the easiest way to, to fleece Main Street. And so they'll continue making it a, a margin play until it no longer is. And I think the trigger will eventually be if U.S. rates go negative. So it's a great, great way to end it. That's it. <laughs> like, boom. Drop the mic. Mic drop. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, look, I appreciate your time. Uh, I can't thank you enough. And um, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch, man. Let's, let's do round two this, uh, soon. All right, man. Good hey, talk. Stay, hey, stay yeah. warm. Thank you for listening to the Money MBA podcast with your host, Jonathan Katsmita. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. To access more great content, visit us online at moneymba.com. That's where the money is. And more than that, control. There's only one person in the world to decide what I'm going to do, and that's me. And I am deadly serious about that. That's it. I'm done.